0: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. David Abaz. He is an organic farmer based in Finland, Minnesota, and he is the executive director of the Northeast Regional Sustainable Development Partnership at the University of Minnesota. Prior to his work with the university, Mr. Abaz designed an aquaponics facility in Silver Bay, Minnesota. He designed the North Shore Agroecology Center in Finland, Minnesota, and he managed the Wolf Ridge Organic Farm and Environmental Learning Center. He also was a former University of Minnesota endowed chair in agricultural systems, I have the pleasure of meeting and learning from Mr. Abbas when we both served on the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Services Board. It's now called Marble Seed. And today we're going to talk about our climate-challenged food and agriculture systems, his forest-assisted migration project, and much more. Welcome, David.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm delighted to have you here. I've had the pleasure of being to your beautiful farm. But I wonder if you could help our listeners travel there.
1: Well, yeah, it's a unique place. In fact, my wife and I picked Finland, Minnesota on a map when we were working on a farm in New Mexico. We were heading to Maine to caretake a farm, and my wife woke up in the middle of the night about 2 a.m. crying. And I'm like, what's wrong? And we had really been planning on going to Maine, but she's from southern Minnesota. Well, southern Minnesota is some of the richest agriculture fields in the world, and she wanted to be in Minnesota. So I went to this little adobe library. I looked in an encyclopedia, tree type, snowfall, access to an ocean, and I came back to this little trailer we were living in on this high desert research farm, and I said, okay, we can go to Minnesota, but we have to go to Finland, Minnesota. And you have to understand, Finland is a tiny town, about 350 people, about three miles, four miles from Lake Superior, where basically the northern woods bleed right through Finland and down towards Duluth. So we're on the north shore of Lake Superior. And we found our piece of land, and we dug the soil down like 12 inches. It looked like a good soil, and we were very excited. When we actually got to farming on it that next spring this is back in 1988, we realized that the soil runs much deeper than where I tested it. It's 22 inches deep to bedrock. So imagine a parking lot and having 22 inches of soil on it. That's what we're growing on. We're just past a ridge line that keeps the cold air from Lake Superior from spilling into our farm. So we're in a little microclimate, just past a ridge that keeps it warmer, which allows us to grow food. Even though it's warmer, some of our challenges have been the length of the growing season. So some of your listeners in southern parts of the United States are not going to quite understand why we're doing this. But we had one July 15th that had a frost. That same year, we had an August 18th frost and a 19th, 20th freeze. So that's a 33-day growing season between frost. Most of our years are longer. And overall, now with climate change, we're two to three weeks longer and one to two zones warmer than when we started here 35 years ago. Wow. It's a very exciting place, a very rugged environment, a very challenging environment, but we've been able to make it work.
0: So you must employ season extension, such as greenhouses, in order to produce food. Is that right?
1: In order to produce certain foods, yes. So we have four high tunnels, and they allow us to grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers, even a few melons, although that's still a little tough for us. So yes, some high tunnels, they're unheated, but they're heated by the nature of the greenhouse effect. And that allows us to get warmer days and longer length of time that they can grow. Most people cannot get tomatoes. That's why up here there are a lot of green tomato dishes.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, your farm is called Round River Farm. Why did you come up with that name?
1: Yeah, well, it's hard to come up with a name, right? You want something to inspire others and mostly yourselves on how you should farm. A lot of people, when they come, I say, so why don't we call it Round River Farm? I'll ask, you know, sixth graders, whole classes. And many times, by the time they've been on our farm for an hour, they know why. And it's not their initial guess. Is there a river that's called Round by here? Uh, is there a river that goes around? None of that's true. It's the mythological Round River that Aldo Leopold, one of the early conservationists, talked about to look at the cycles of nature the cycles of life, and we named it Rounder Farm because the more we create circles with our energy, with our soils, with our health, with so many things, the better ecologically it will be and sustained. Mm-hmm. Whereas much of our farming, our soil is treated like a medium and a less and less fertile medium at that, where you can put chemicals and fertilizers and herbicides in to grow your crops. It's a sponge to hold the chemicals to grow your crops. What we've been able to do through that concept of Round River is figure out how do we actually build healthy, rich soil. And when we first got here, let's say our first crops were pretty pathetic. We grew a cover crop of buckwheat, and it grew about two inches and then died. When we did a soil analysis, we had less than 1% organic matter. And over the years, through cover crops, compost, manures, and the care of the soil that we've been able to do, we've raised that organic matter and the soil health greatly. So now when our acre, our original acre, used to hold about 6,000 pounds of carbon in that organic matter, because there's almost none, now that same acre can hold over 194,000 pounds of carbon. Because when you look at 15, 16, 17% organic matter, about 58% of that organic matter is carbon. And that's how you can get a pretty reliable estimate of what you're doing to the soil. And carbon is the basis of organic farming. And so this has been our process, and all inspired by the term round river.
0: Well, I want to direct people to your website, which is www.round-river.com, just to get an idea of what this looks like. And on that acre, you have grown hundreds of varieties of vegetables. You have fed your local community. And so when we hear messages from industrial agriculture that we've got to have these huge farms for efficiency I can't think of anything more beautiful and productive and nourishing than what you have done on your one acre.
1: Well, it's not just me. It's all those small farmers across the world that are primarily feeding our population. That's right. When you get away from the big corporate crops, we're talking about the typical meals of many people on this planet are coming from small farms. And so... One of the things that we also want to use, you know, when we came here, we're off the grid. We want to experiment. What could we do with as little resources as possible? Can we come up with ways that we can live as humans that find a balance between our agriculture pursuits and our forestry needs with our ecological and wild needs, which I think we need as well, both in ecological terms, but in spiritual terms. And so... We have tried to figure out how to grow more on less land, and building up organic matter, building up the soils is the best way to do that. Yes, we ran a CSA with 65 shares with over 300 different varieties of plants, and that's not counting the 44 varieties of rhubarb we have or the fruit. That's just the vegetables. So the diversity is important. That's a major thread of sustainability is diversity. And regenerative is another big important aspect on not just sustaining, but creating a new and better and more rich and resilient system that starts with the soil and goes right on up to the trees.
0: I'm really glad you used that word because I think that there are many folks latching on to this term regenerative, But it doesn't really have a standardized definition, does it?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit undefined, unlike organic, which has been legally defined. And so it's anyone's guess, kind of like the word natural in foods. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that makes it hard to know what is what.
0: Well, if anybody wants to go and look at your farm, they can see what organic regenerative farming looks like. I want to go back to the rhubarb story because, first of all, I love rhubarb. I had no idea that there were 162 known varieties of the plant. You're currently maintaining 44 varieties of rhubarb. What led you down that path?
1: Well, a lot of our initial work, High Desert Research Farm, was a seed preservation farm way back 35 years ago. And the genetics of our crops and the diversity and broad genetic representation of our crops is really, really important, especially as things get challenging. If you have pest infestations, you have rust infestations, a broad genetics is really essential for a long term, healthy, resilient agriculture system. So it's true with apples, it's true with carrots, it's true with broccoli. And we've lost a lot of our genetic material through attrition over time as we've selected for more and more production and uniformity. And that can go a ways, but as we all know, with the potato famine in Ireland, if you narrow the genetics too much, you end up with problems. Or the wheat rust problem out west, and there's some very ancient genetics in wheat now that have that resistance because they were not being successful with their breeding program. So they brought in older genes from a very poor-performing crop but had those important characteristics that make up that crop today. And so it's the same with rhubarb. There's been 162 identified, different varieties. I bet there's less than that, but genetically they haven't done the genome test on them. But we have 44 growing now. We would like to get the rest of the USDA collection, which would be another 40. And when I retire from my university job, that's one of the things I hope to bolster up. Rhubarb grows typically very well in our environment, and it's got some incredible health qualities. And for me, I'm also looking for a replacement to lemon juice in our canning of jams and things like that. Lemon juice, of course, I cannot grow in Finland, Minnesota. And even with climate change, I will not be able to grow in Finland, Minnesota. Right. And so, having a high acidic juice from rhubarb, I'm thinking could play the niche role of lemon juice in that canning process. Oh, that's and it's got fascinating. a lot of other health potentialities as well. But at the very least, it's part of creation, a part of a human story within creation. And we want to preserve as much of the genetic material as we can. And no one is doing rhubarb. So that's why I jumped in on that.
0: That's great. We've got to take a break because we're halfway through. And I just want to remind our audience that if you are just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Mr. David Abaz. He is an organic farmer based in Finland, Minnesota. He's also the executive director of the Northeast Regional Sustainable Development Partnership at the University of Minnesota, And he's working on a project that I wanted to talk with him about today called the Forest Assisted Migration Project. But before we do that, I want to bring up a word that you taught me. The word is phenology and using agrophenology in planting and harvesting and knowing how to get the most production of nutritious food from the land. Tell me about this word? Define it for our audience so that we can understand it.
1: Sure. Agrophenology, agro is, of course, referencing the agriculture part of the name. And phenology, as many of you might know, is the study of change over time all across nature. So the first dandelion flower is a phenological indicator. The first leaves of the service berries is a phenological indicator. And what we have experienced as farmers is that the calendar, our regular calendar, which is based not on what's going on in nature, but a static representation of time, the calendar is no longer as helpful to us. We used to just say, okay, May 1st, we plant this. May 15th, we plant this. But the variability of the seasons has always been there, but it's even more dramatic now. And so the idea is to use phenological indicators to determine what we do and what we plant and what we put in nature as we look at our agriculture system. So over time, we've studied the timing of events like Juneberry's first flower or black flies becoming annoying or sugar maple's first flower or the first song of the oven bird. Or the leaves, you know, so whatever indicator we're looking at, chorus frogs are another indicator we use. Catkins, fully expanded of aspens, they all tell us something. And what we did through our research is winnow out the phenological indicators that are less connected with what's happening in the soils and the environment from the ones that are very telling on what's happening. So we have learned that the crow, as a phenological indicator showing up for the first time in the spring, is not a good, reliable indicator of how our soils and how our land is doing. They are a little bit independent, and they come up sometimes when it's colder than ever. They come up sometimes when it's warm. They are very free-willed animal within our system whereas the American toad is more connected with the environment that's happening. As the snows melt, they emerge at a certain temperature in the water, and the first flowers of lilacs come at a certain time based on soil temperature, and the leaves of juneberries come at a certain time. And so we have found those indicators to be more reliable. So, for instance, instead of saying, May 16th, let's plant peas, brassicas, brussels sprouts, kale out in the fields, No, we wait until the sugar maple puts their first flower out on their leaves. And at that time, we plant those crops. And we also have a task related to it. And then we till the next field when the moisture conditions are right. The fields that get planted after the brassica group and the peas. And so then you go on to the first flowers of common lilac. And that's usually about the beginning of June, but it can be earlier, can be later, depending on what's going on in the soil. And at that point, when the common lilac flowers come out, we plant in our high tunnels the tomatoes and peppers and melons, but in our fields, cilantro, fennel, dill, corn, sunflowers, and the second planting of brassicas. And then our task as we start mowing our orchards and do sequencing mowing, because we do sequencing mowing to allow for the bees and other pollinators to always have flowers as you sequence mower, you create that rotational effect of flowering. And so all this goes together. And the most important thing of all, it creates me to be more of an observer. Mm. So every morning I walk back from where my wife and I sleep from May 1st on, in a, a wall tent at our lake, about eight-minute walk away from the farm. So I've picked a bunch of indicators along that walk. I walk by the fields, I see what's going on, and I'm getting a sense of moisture levels and other things, and then I'm getting an indication from my phenological partners in this. So it's a nature map that determines our planting.
0: And it is also very much region-specific, is that correct?
1: (laughs) I would say that is exactly true, but it's not just region-specific, It's one farm that I was managing, our family farm, and another farm three miles away, different phenological timing. One's in the lowlands, wetter, and even on our field, for the dandelion flower, the first flowering, I plant spinach out in our fields, and that's early May, typically, but if I use the flower from our upper pasture, it flowers five days earlier. So I use the dandelion flower at the area where I'm going to plant the spinach in that location. So you have to, one, know what you're following, and two, customize it to your site. So you can learn a generality from me in my region, but then you have to customize it directly to your place. And that process of learning just makes you all the better a farmer because you're spending more time observing.
0: And that's what I remember from the farmers I met through the Marble Seed Conference was that they were such keen observers where rather than reaching for an insecticide when they saw a pest, the question was, why do I have this pest? And so it was this broader systems thinking process. Right. You know, it's beautiful. It's very much land-based, this connection to land, the Leo Aldepold example that you gave earlier. But I want to talk about scale because so many of our agriculture students learn that we got to get big, we've got to be efficient, and yet what you've proved on your farms is that we want to have many more smaller farms where there's a more intimate relationship between the land steward and the food produced.
1: Yeah, and the most efficient, certainly for vegetable farms, are those small, intimate ones. We're producing so much food on a small acreage on land that shouldn't even be considered agricultural because of its conditions. And so the answer for nutrition is figuring out a broader agriculture system that supports a rich group of farmers. And not only that, that builds resilient and vibrant rural communities. Exactly. And there's so many other aspects to it that are not only good for agriculture and for production, And the true definition of efficiency, because efficiency is not running a gas-powered tractor on huge fields and getting a decent crop through incredible amounts of inputs of energy through fertilizers and other things. That's not efficient if you really look at it, at all the parts. And, you know, even as we look down the road where phosphorus is a mined crop that's in every fertilizer mix, those are getting exhausted. It might be phosphorus that determines a drastic shift in agriculture even before gas. Mm. On our scale, we have so much wildness around us, and one of the plants that's wild, which is a bracken fern, and bracken is high in phosphorus. So, on our scale, if we were to ever need phosphorus without a fertilizer, we could harvest the abundance of bracken out growing naturally in our forests and fields and put that in our compost to gain and maintain our phosphorus. Wow. So scale is important on many ways and many reasons. Yeah. And really needs to be considered in everything, not just agriculture, but in housing, in healthcare, in so many different things scale can play a huge role. Why are these ecologically homes not as ecological as they should be because they're 5 times as big? As they used to be. Right. So, what are we actually measuring when we're looking at efficiency?
0: Well, and I'm thinking about your ability to save money on expensive inputs simply by understanding what the plants in your region have to offer. You know, David, I've got to jump into another section here on my notes because it's really important, and that has to do with your forest assisted migration project. Because it ties into water quality, air quality, it ties into climate change. Tell me what you mean by forest-assisted migration.
1: Yeah, and this is something my wife and I are doing more of now. We're growing trees as part of this process. What it is, is our forest, right now I live in a boreal forest. In the next 50 years, it's going to change from a boreal to a mixed, to a broadly forest. Tree biome shift. Because change is happening so fast. We have a 2.5 degree change in much of our region now, Mm. already. And so what we're seeing is a huge decline of our forest species. You know, when people talked about this years ago, I'm like, ah, the trees are always going to be here. And now I'm witnessing, having lived here so long, I'm witnessing that it is happening. So our forest is changing. Our spruce and budworm is just destroying our spruce and firs. Now 80% will be gone within a few years. Our white birch, or our paper birch, it's also another name, is turning from what used to be a big tree, and I'm noticing it becoming a multi-stem shrub. And so what we're seeing is drastic change. Now, have forests have changed in the past? You bet. A glacier crawling over a forest and sitting there for a while is a huge change. And when it recedes, that's also a huge change. And forests have migrated before. They've migrated miles and miles and miles over thousands of years. But the change that's happening now is over an order of 50 years. And so... Through research, through some understanding, we're seeing genetics of trees we grow here in northern Minnesota that grow here naturally. If we grab the seed of those same trees from southern Minnesota, they're outperforming, outgrowing, out-surviving the native seed here. Now, it's native all throughout the Midwest, but the genetics we're trying to bring from southern locations up. And so to do all this, we have this huge work with the Nature Conservancy and the University of Minnesota Duluth with Julie Ederson, a researcher there, and Meredith Cornett as part of the Nature Conservancy. And we pulled together this project to try and fill the gaps. And the gaps were seed collection and the gaps were growers. And so between the three of us, we've been creating opportunities and networks and supply chain-type systems to build a local system. And now we have a 17 farmers that have formed their first Farm and Forest Growers Cooperative. They are the growers of these climate-smart, climate-forward tree seedlings. And we have a network between the Nature Conservancy and UMD doing seed collecting and seed processing and germination. And through my work, through the university with the Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships, I have two Climate Corps foresters leading the charge in many of those aspects. Mm. So then all of these seeds will be distributed to these farmers. The farmers grow them. And then planting organizations plant the seedlings we grow, like the Nature Conservancy, like Minnesota Power, like all these other organizations within our region trying to figure out how we're going to maintain and improve our forest stand as things are changing drastically.
0: David, we just have 30 seconds. What do you want to leave our audience with?
1: There is so much to do, but there is so much that can be done. So make a stand, take a step, figure out what is your piece of the pie that you want to put into that big pie and make a difference. As Gandhi said, change comes from a spoonful of curd in a vat of milk. That milk wakes up the next morning and doesn't even know what happened to it. So be that curd, be that spoonful, and let's together change what we consider normal, and let's make it a more ecological, spiritual, and connected world.
0: That's beautiful. If you have been enjoying this information and want to learn more, I will be sure to provide links to the Forest Assisted Migration Project, as well as round-river.com. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. David Abaz. He and his wife, Lisa, operate Round River Farm based in Finland, Minnesota. And David is the executive director of the Northeast Regional Sustainable Development Partnership at the University of Minnesota. David, thank you so much for being my guest today.
1: Well, my pleasure. What a great interview. Thank you.